We, last week we started uh, the book of Mark, which we started our church in. If you were a part then or if you've ever listened to like the first uh, couple years of sermons at our church, we were in this, in this book um, for about a year and a half. And we th- I thought it was really important to almost as, as if we were restarting our church uh, post pandemic, but not really post, because we're still in the middle of, I don't know what it is, like living in the midst of pandemic and getting a new building. And as, as Gabby said at the very beginning, we say this all the time, our, the vision of our church, or maybe the mission of our church, or just maybe the big idea of our church is that we want to be a community following Jesus, seeking renewal in our city. And as a community following Jesus, we want to look to the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus to know how we live our lives, and how we bring about the renewal that Jesus began and con- is continued through the life of the church. So I think it's really important that we, that we just kind of stay in this book for a while and absorb all the nutrients from the way and the life of Jesus. So we started this last week. And what we've been trying to do, I've been trying to do the, for the first at least three weeks of this series is zoom out so we get a bigger picture of what uh, Mark is trying to do in his book, how he's trying to tell the story of Jesus um, how he's like kind of um, showing us the plot. Like if you've ever watched a movie that has no plot, it's the worst, worst experience ever. Um, it could be super artsy or it could be really action-packed, but it has no plot, it falls apart. Uh, Mark tells his, the story of Jesus um, with a really good plot. And we get to know that plot today. And with every good plot, unless there's tension, the thing falls apart as well. Um, even though it's good, it could be like Ted Lasso, but you want tension right? If you've, just, if you've not watched that show, I don't know where you've been in your life. But that show, though it's really good, it needs tension. Like every good plot needs tension. And we get introduced to the tension in plots in Mark's um, book today as well. So that's what we're looking at. Last week we looked at the cross. We said we can't really understand Jesus until the cross. And then most people getting it wrong throughout the book brings a bit of uh, uh, like narrative tension in it. Like we know who Jesus is, but no one else knows who Jesus is until the very end. And we said that the reason why the cross is so important is that on the cross, Jesus is understood or anointed as king. He is king. Uh, It's where Jesus received his crown. It's where Jesus received his robe. It's where Jesus was lifted up so all people everywhere could see him in his glory. And though this is extremely odd, we will, we will kind of, as we go through this, we'll, it'll, it'll become more clear to us why Jesus is anointed king on the cross. But probably tantamount to that is why Jesus says if we want to be his disciple, we too have to take up our cross to follow him. Now, all these are very, very important. But today we're in Mark chapter 14 and 15. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you. Or if you're upstairs, there's ones on the aisle. And uh, hopefully you have a note. We, I, I kind of want us to study this together. So it's like old school Bible study, like where I'm hoping that you take notes and stuff like that. That's like my hope. So um, we're in verses 14 and 15, but to get some context, because 14 and 15 don't come out of nowhere, let's start in verse 1 and read to verse 15. So if you have a Bible, Mark 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore 
clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Hang on to that word torn open. That's a very, very important phrase. Heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Hang on to that. Wilderness 40 days. Being tempted by Satan. Remember that as well. I mean, basically remember everything I'm saying, okay? He was with the wild animals. Hang on to that. And the angels attended to him. Okay, here's our, here's our verse. Uh, after John was put into prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus began to proclaim the good news of God or the gospel of God. And this is what the gospel of God is. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the words of uh, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for um, this congregation this morning that they would come to know who you are as Jesus the Lord, that you would be exalted, that you'd be lifted up in our minds and in our hearts as the King, as the Lord. And by looking to you, we would know who we are, we would know what place we have in this great big earth that you've entrusted to us and how we are to live. And I pray, that, Lord, that by exalting you, Jesus, and by preaching you, Christ, and your gospel, that you would begin to draw people to yourself that trust in you and believe in the gospel. Would you anoint me to, to deal faithfully with the scriptures? In Jesus' name, amen. I remember a, a few years ago, I was watching one of James Corden's uh, famous carpool karaoke's. James Corden uh, hosted the Late Late Show, of course, and um, he, gets, he has these bits where he gets in the car with some singer, and they put their music on the radio, and they sing together. Now, he picks up Chris Martin from Coldplay, the, the lead singer and main songwriter of Coldplay, and one of the songs, as they're singing together, as they're driving, one of the songs that comes up for them to sing is um, Coldplay's hit, Viva La Vida. And um, the chorus goes like this. I hear Jerusalem bells are ringing, Roman Calvary chorus singing. But James sings something else. He's singing something else entirely. And as the chorus is going and they're both singing at the same time, Chris Martin turns down the, the radio and says, what, what, are, you, what are you saying? Um, what are you singing about the, the song I wrote? What, what do you think it says? And James says, oh, a few cherished bells are ringing. And then Chris Martin starts laughing. And James says, well, what does it say there? I don't, what, what does it say? And Chris says, I think kind of famously, because if you know anything about Chris Martin, this is totally his personality. He's like, it doesn't really matter what the lyrics are. That's music, man. Whatever you want to sing, just sing it. Whatever it is that you think it is, sing it. And then James says, oh, is it, I hear Jerusalem bells are ringing? And then Chris says, that's what I'm singing. <laughs> but you can sing whatever you want to sing. When my daughter was an infant, I would, I would sing to her. But, um, but, you know, I was 
40 at the time when she was an infant, and I didn't really know any nursery rhymes because up to that point in my life, I had no need to learn nursery rhymes. So I would take whatever song was in my head and make up new lyrics for her. And the song that was always the most accessible to me in my head, probably because I listened to it like a billion times in high school, was the song by the band Rage Against the Machine. I don't know if you've ever heard Rage Against the Machine, not necessarily nursery rhyme sort of content, but, um, but uh, it seems like a horrible idea. I, the, the song that came to my mind was their song, Killing in the Name of, which is a horrible idea to sing to a newborn, but when you change the lyrics to Blessing in the Name of, it kind of, it's kind of awesome. It's kind of awesome. And so I would sing this to her, and then um, when the song builds to the best part of the song and the most explicit part of the song, where it says, I'll just say, forget you, because he doesn't say that, but I'll say that. Forget you, I won't do what you tell me. Forget you, I, I, I changed it to, bless you, I will do what you tell me. <laughs> like prophetically speaking that over her. And it worked. I mean, it worked. That was the, now, I don't know if, if Chris Martin is right, but maybe that is music. Maybe you can change its meaning. Maybe you can turn a Rage Against the Machine song that has no business to be sang to a two-month-old into a nursery rhyme. But, and maybe that's the point of music. But we get in trouble if we do that with other things, right? Like the speed limit, you can't really interpret that to mean what you want it to mean. Or the price of oat milk at Whole Foods, like I don't think it should be this much money, I think it should be this much money, and that's how much I'm gonna pay you, because oats are everywhere. Literally, they grow everywhere. You can't charge that much for oat milk. With, uh, with other things, it's obvious that you can't do that. You can't, you can't just make up your own meaning to things. Now, what about the gospel? And this is my simple message today. What about the gospel? Can we do that with the gospel? Are we allowed to change the gospel so it's more meaningful and thus it's more good news to us? Because gospel, if you, if you have the ESV, um, Jesus says, it says gospel, repent and believe gospel. If you have NIV, it says good news, the exact same, uh, euangelion, same word, okay? Good news or gospel, right? Are you allowed to change the gospel so that it fits the ears of people who listen to it so it becomes good news to them. Does that make sense? Here's how the logic goes. And I've heard this, you know, 20-something plus years of pastoring. This is how I've heard it go. The gospel means good news. Good news is what we expect when someone shares the gospel with us. But if we hear the gospel preached to us and we don't hear good news, it must not be the gospel. That's usually how it goes. So we have to make it, when someone preaches the gospel, that doesn't sound like good news to me. How could it be the gospel? So we change it. We change it to, so it's more palpable, more digestible, more good newsy. Now, if you ask Jesus or just took the gospel as Jesus preached it, what would the gospel be? What is the gospel according to Jesus? That's a very good question to ask yourself. What is the gospel according to Jesus, and did Jesus preach that gospel? Or did he not preach the gospel, and he had to wait until his death and resurrection? That's a very good question. According to Jesus, this is the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near. That is the gospel according to Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, for you, you might be thinking, that does not sound like good news. Good news would be something like, my sins are forgiven, I'm going to heaven when I die, all my life plans will now happen because of Jesus' power, and my kids will obey me. That's good news. And you would be right. That does sound like good news. But that's not what Jesus said. 
Now, some of that is true, but they are not the gospel. Some of them might be implications of the gospel, but they are not the gospel, at least not the gospel Jesus preached. Mark opens up with the gospel Jesus himself preached. And what is it? What's the gospel Jesus preached? That's the question. That's the question I want you to run in your notes if you're taking notes. That's the question I want you to mull over as you're reflecting on this throughout the week. What is the gospel Jesus preached? What is the good news Jesus preached? And here it is. Look at verse 14. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel. Or, your translation might say, Jesus came preaching the good news. Quote, so Jesus is about to enter into the scene, onto the scene, and he's about to proclaim or preach the good news or the gospel. Are you with me? And this is what his message was, verse 15. Here's the gospel. The time has come, and the kingdom of God has come near. That is the gospel Jesus preached. The time has come, or the time has been fulfilled. We'll talk about that in a second. The kingdom of God has come near. The gospel of God has come near. The gospel of God has come near, it says, repent and believe the gospel. What's the gospel? That the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe that. That is what Jesus preached. Now, there's all kinds of questions attached to that. Now, what is the kingdom of God? If the, if the gospel is the kingdom of God has come near, the question should be, what is the kingdom of God? Now, when you hear the word kingdom throughout the book of Mark, throughout the book, basically in the gospels or in the New Testament, when you hear the word kingdom, replace it with words like rule, dominion, reign, action, will, things like that. First of all, in Greek, there is no, um, this is not, this is, um, it's not gendered. So kingdom in our, in our language is gendered. It means king, male, but it's not gendered in Greek. It's, it's gender neutral. It's, it really means dominion, reign, action, will. It's basically the rule of God. Okay, so think of it like that. In the Old Testament, the concept was, and by the way, this is why I said, hold on to that, hold on to that, hold on to that, hold on. You know why I said, hold on to that? Because whatever you believe the gospel is, if you don't need the Old Testament to preach the gospel, you don't have the gospel. The gospel context is the Old Testament. You have to understand it to understand the gospel. This is why Mark, when he tells a, tells a story, it starts with the passage from Isaiah. It starts with John the Baptist being the forerunner of Jesus, as told in the Old Testament. This is why Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Who was in the wilderness for 40 years? Israel. Who does he meet in this wilderness? Satan. Who did Adam meet in the garden? Satan. There's, there's all these allusions to the Old Testament because that's the context. Now, the kingdom of God has roots in the Old Testament, and this is what the kingdom was defined as in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God is an expression that embodied the hopes of the Jewish people that God would one day remove all evil from the world and inaugurate a new, unprecedented age of blessing, prosperity, and joy. So in the Old Testament, after the fall, after, the, after brokenness, after Egypt, when the prophets came, they would prophesy of a time when God would be installed as king, and God would be king over the whole world. And God's rule would be over everything and bring everything in line to his rule. So anything that was out of line to God's rule would be um, confronted and replaced. That's what they believed. So this hope that the Jewish people had looking forward was a spatial hope and a spiritual hope. 
It was a hope that embodied um, uh, spiritually that the power of sin was destroyed, that the enemy Satan was disarmed, and that all people would worship God. They believed that. They believed that one day when God is rightfully king, this hope was spatial and that the power of sin was just eradicated in all of its effects, that the enemy, the Satan, was destroyed, that serpent of old, and all people would worship God. But it's also spatial. Check this out. They believed they believe that the world would not know poverty or hunger, so it was economic. People would turn their, their swords into plowshares. Oppressive governance would be, governments would be brought down, so it was political. They believed that the Messiah would rule and reign, and all political um, uh, crookedness, all political um, uh, sin would be brought under in line with God's rule. And the world would not know famine, deprivation, and all animals would get along. All animals would get along. It was environmental. Simply put, the kingdom of God was the rule of God, where God became rightful king ruling the world. Now, this is really important. What the Jewish people saw was that there's, there's this age and the age to come. There's an age that we live in now that is not defined by this at all. They tried to bring it in through obedience to God, but they, they didn't hold on to it very long. They were actually told by God that I want to bring this rule into the world through you, Israel. I'm going to bless you so that you may be a blessing. But they can never hold on to it. And that's the book of First and Second Kings. That's the book of First and Second Chronicles. That's what that is. Like that over, judges that over and over and over again, they could not do it. But this is what they believe. They believe that one day God would come and do it himself. And God would close a curtain and open a curtain. Think of it this way, as a play. That, that a curtain would close on something and a curtain would open on something. A curtain would close on this age, this age, which is defined by, uh, by the Jewish people as Satan's time. A curtain would close that is characterized by sin and sickness and demon possession and evil people triumphing. God would close that curtain. It's done with. It's not even happening anymore. Satan's age or Satan's time is over with. And then they would open a curtain on the age to come. And this is the time of God's rule. This is characterized by the presence of the Spirit of God everywhere, righteousness, health, and peace. And they believed that, that, that God would come and this age would be done with and a new age would come. Are you with me? Are you following? This is, this is the hope of the Jewish people. Now, that's what the kingdom of God was. Now, what is Jesus saying about all of that? He's saying this. It's here. It's at hand. It's near you. Right? That's verse, that's verse 15. The time has come. What time? The time of God's rule is here. The time of God's rule, characterized by the presence of the Spirit of God, righteousness, health, and peace, is here. It's near you because I am near you. What happened in Jesus, and I will say this, not just on the cross, what happened at this moment right here at Jesus' baptism when heaven was torn open, this is what happened in time and space in Jesus before his death. And that's, that's an important point, but I'll get to that in a second. All that to mean, what I mean by that is Jesus inaugurated this kingdom. The kingdom of God has come in. It's breaking in. Its power is upon us. Jesus is saying the time has come. It's here. Now, the reason why we know that is that right before this, Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. Now, Mark doesn't tell us how that ends. We have to go to Matthew and Luke to, Luke to find that out. But Mark alludes to it. He says, 
Jesus went to the wilderness and he confronted Satan and he came out and said, the time has come. Or in other words, his time is over. Satan's time. The kingdom of God is now here and it's going to be breaking in. The kingdom of God is here, meaning Jesus defeated Satan. In Mark's story, the first enemy to be destroyed was the devil. In Paul's writings, the last enemy to destroy it is what? Death. But the first enemy in Mark's gospel, the first enemy to be destroyed is the devil. So Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness, stepped out of the wilderness and said, the kingdom of God is now coming in. What has come before is now done. Satan's time ruling this earth is now done. Satan's time is over with. The kingdom is now here. And not just here, but what Jesus was saying is that the kingdom or the rule or the reign or the domain or the dominion of God is now available. This is so important. It's available. Jesus preached that the kingdom of God is available. This is the best definition of the gospel that I've ever found. Here it is. The gospel is the availability of the kingdom of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the availability of the kingdom of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, why is this good news? Here's why. Let me just get pastoral for a second. Whatever is going on in your life right now, the pain of whatever you're going through, the ambiguity of what you're going through, the, I, I can't even pretend. I, I know that when a group this size gathers, there's a lot of junk and baggage we bring in a room like this. We don't have to scratch that far beneath the surface to find real, real pain. The good news is that the kingdom of God is available to you right now in whatever you're going through, close to you, and that means that you can open up to it. You don't actually have to go anywhere to do that. You can literally open up to it because it's near you. You could take a breath and open yourself up to the reality of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ right now. Sometimes when I do this practice, and I'm not, I'm not that good at it, I hope that when I'm 68, I'm really good at it. But whenever I feel stressed or whenever I feel like I'm maybe I'm overreacting, which you can ask my wife, I don't do that often, but I do a lot. I get paranoid, because I get, I mean, COVID, right? Paranoia, it's everywhere, right? Whenever I do, I take a deep breath, and I'm like, the kingdom of God is here. And I can trust in God's kingdom. I can believe in it, and it can break into time and space right now and fill my mind and my heart and the living room that I'm in or the car that I'm in, I don't have to rush. I don't have to worry the kingdom. of And whatever does happen to me, God knows how to make all things new and all things right. If I just believe in the gospel. Now, that is the promise rule of God. But here's the thing. You might have noticed this. I just told you about the rule of God and the kingdom of God. You're like, wait, time out, pastor. Listen, I know that you said king of God breaks in, all these things, but, but like, that is not happening everywhere. I mean, there's things going on in the world, Afghanistan, people dying, war. It's horrific. It feels like every time you turn on the news, you get depressed, and it's been like that for ever. 
There's a paradox in this text. If you look at it, look at verse 14. After John was put into prison, after John was put into prison, the kingdom of God broke in. Wait, this doesn't even make sense. If the kingdom of God is at hand, then why is one of its servants on his way to his undeserved death? If the kingdom of God is breaking in, why is one of the, the followers of this kingdom and the announcers of this kingdom about to be beheaded? How does that even make sense? Or said differently, if the kingdom of God is inaugurated by Jesus and is really present in human reality, how is it possible that seemingly innocent people still suffer and die? Why is that a thing? This wasn't supposed to happen. And, and if Israel's God was becoming king of the world, an unjust government could not imprison one of his followers. And what we know is clearly God in Jesus had broken into human history. Jesus, we're going to see as we move on in this book, is casting out demons, healing the sick, forgiving sins, showing power over nature, even over death. He is, the kingdom of God is breaking in, reversing everything the fall took from us. But we have John the Baptist. In the same breath, Mark says that John was arrested and Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. This is a paradox. This is a juxtaposition. What's going on? This is what scholars call the already not yet kingdom of God. Now, if you go back to this idea of a curtain closing and a curtain opening, imagine this, that the curtain didn't close on Satan's time, just the kingdom of God opened. And now there's overlapping kingdoms or kingdoms in conflict. And this, kingdoms in conflict, is where Mark's plot about the story of Jesus takes shape. Jesus steps in and announces the kingdom of God is at hand, but the problem is there are many other kingdoms at play. You go to work right now, there's a kingdom at play right, right there. Your job, your work, your CEO, your founder, maybe you might be that person. You have a kingdom that you're trying to expand. And that comes in conflict, conflict with the kingdom of God. The United States has a kingdom it's trying to expand. You turn on the news, they're just kingdoms in conflict all the time. And Jesus' kingdom goes right in subversively into the middle of all the other kingdoms, and then there's conflict. This is exactly what's happening. Jesus has announced and proclaimed that the kingdom of God is now open and available, and Jesus' goal is to teach about and invite people into the kingdom that has opened up in time and space. He's like, come in, everyone, whoever wants to come into the kingdom of God. Now, but there are people, there are things, beings, spirits, other kingdoms that do not like this, that push, push against you. This is where the conflict arises. First, you have, the, you have three people that are in conflict to Jesus' rule. You can write them down. The first are the demons. This is demonic conflict. As soon as Jesus, is, Jesus announces the good news in chapter 1, verse 21, he comes right in contact with a demon. Why? Because demons don't want their gig to be messed up. We have, we're doing really good before you came here, Jesus. We're messing up humans and, and causing them to do these things and possessing them and oppressing them and destroying them and making them fight. I mean, we were, all, we were doing all kinds of stuff. Then you came on the scene and we don't like that. We know who you are, the Son of God. Have you come to destroy us? And what's the answer? Yes. The answer is yes. Jesus, I've come to destroy you. I've just come to destroy your kingdom. But, so there's conflict there. And you'll see that throughout Mark's book. There's conflict with the demonic. Will there be conflict with the demonic for the people of God today? Yes, there will be. The other conflict is with, and the main conflict is with authorities. Jesus' message will conflict with the religious leaders who think that 
there actually has to be all kinds of boundaries around the rule of God. And the only way to get holiness, to get to God, you have to be holy, you have to obey boundaries, and you have to obey the separation laws. And what does Jesus do? He blows that all apart. See, for, for, the, for the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of that time, you had to be made clean, you had to purify yourself, you had to do all these things, and then you got to, be, to go into God's presence in the temple. But Jesus takes what was in the temple, God's presence, and brings it outside, and he brings it to the people who are furthest away. It's like the kingdom of heaven has been ripped open, and it's everywhere now. So Jesus goes to the poor and the oppressed and the lepers and the sexually broken, the people that never deserved to come into the kingdom of God, and he said the kingdom of God is near. And that's why you have all these people rushing in, all these people that never thought that they would have availability into God's presence. They're rushing at Jesus, literally tearing the roof from a place to get to him. I want to get to the kingdom. I want to get there right now. You have people that run up to him and with their tears wash his feet and with their hair wipe, wipe him down because the kingdom of God has come so near. They just, it's like the, the thing that I've wanted the most is the kingdom. And I've, I've been told my whole life that I'm so far away from it, but it's right here. So the authorities don't like this. And you know what they end up doing? Killing him. Jesus ultimately gets killed because the authorities do not like that Jesus is rewriting the boundaries. The last people, third people, who are in conflict with Jesus' message is the disciples themselves. The last conflict is that the, the, the fact that the disciples don't get it. They believe the kingdom. They want the kingdom. They, know, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You are the one, and I know what you're going to do. You're going to come, and we're going to rule spatially over all of Rome and everything, and I want to be on your right and your left. We talked about this last week, but they don't see it. It's not like they, th- like, like they think it will be, and so they keep conflicting with Jesus. Jesus is like, well, I'm going to the cross. You're like, you can't go to the cross. He's like, no, that's it. That's the kingdom. We go to the cross, and if you want to follow me, you have to go to your cross. They're like, what? No, no, no. I want to be number one. I want, to be the, I want you to baptize my life plan. He's like, no. You have to die to that, like literally die and become a servant of all. Now, why is getting this right and rightly ordered so important? Why is getting the gospel rightly ordered such a big deal? Why isn't just the gospel, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved, and I want to go to heaven when I die. Why isn't the gospel just that? Why are, you make, why are you messing this whole thing up? I've said this before, but I think it's important. We are in danger of believing a two-part gospel versus a four-part gospel. The two-part gospel goes something like this. We've been told this. I was told this when I first became a Christian or whatever. I don't know. I first was told about the gospel. You're born a sinner, bound for hell. Jesus saves, gets you to heaven. This is the message, this is the Romans road. This is what, this is basically the salvation story we're told, we've been told the last hundred and something years. You're born a sinner, bound for, this is, for, for me, I was, I was, I'll tell the story a little bit more next week, but I, I was at a, 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 like a house church meeting, and someone asked me, are you going to heaven when you die? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, why? Because I'm not that bad. I don't hate anyone, I haven't murdered and they said, you're a sinner bound for hell. Believe in Jesus and you get to heaven. I'm like, cool, I believe in Jesus. I'm like, okay, hey, say this prayer. 
What prayer? This one. Cool. I said it. You're a Christian. Cool. And then I went, I went on my way listening to Rage Against the Machine and smoking pot. I mean, that's just like <laughs> what I did. Cool. All right. I'm a Christian now. What do I do? Come to church. Cool. All right. Great. The two-part gospel is a truncated gospel that makes us into people who believe in salvation but are not disciples of Jesus. That is the biggest problem with the two-part gospel. Fire insurance. Am I, do, when I go to heaven, do I? And when I die, do I get to go to heaven? Yeah, you're, you're saved from hell. But that, 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 that wasn't the message Jesus, he, he was teaching, follow him. The whole gospel goes something like this. Creation. God created the world as good, and I was made in God's image. Not only that, but I was made as a co-creator with God. I was made to participate in spreading the shalom of God all over the world. The Garden of Eden, the hope was that that garden would spread. You notice when they got kicked out of the garden, it was kind of wild and wildernessy. Like, why wasn't the garden the whole world? Because that wasn't God's job. That was human's job. To take the Garden of Eden and spread it everywhere. But they didn't. So got cast out of the garden. Second part is the fall. Sin into the world through disobedience. I don't trust God. I don't trust that he has my, I don't want to partner with him. I want to do my own thing. That's disobedience. Redemption. The redemption story is told from Genesis 12 on when God chooses Abraham to go, this family, I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless the world and we're going to start this redemption story all over again through Israel. And over and over again, if you read the story of Israel, they don't get it right. So God himself said he'd come and do it right. That is the life and the availability of God's presence through Jesus. That's redemption. But then restoration, God is going to make all things new. And if you don't believe in the four-part gospel, you won't, you won't see what discipleship really is and what it's for. Um, said, you know, kind of maybe kind of crassly, but he gets the point across really well. Scott McKnight, in his really amazing book, Jesus, King Gospel, says this. We are asking the plan of salvation, right, to do something was never intended to do, that two-part gospel. The plan of salvation, to put, to put it crudely, isn't discipleship or justice or obedience. The plan of salvation leads to one thing and one thing only, salvation. Justification leads to the declaration of God by God, that we are in the right, that we are in the people of God. It doesn't lead uh, uh, inexorably to, the, to a life of justice and goodness or loving kindness. If it did, all Christians would be more just and more filled with goodness and drenched in love. <laughs> what he's saying there is this. The gospel that Jesus preached should turn into people that look like Jesus did. But does it? No, because we, we typically preach a salvation gospel. You're a sinner going to hell. Believe in Jesus and go to heaven. Okay, I'll do that. Does that, does that automatically turn you into someone that looks like Jesus? No. What, it, what does? Discipleship. Jesus' gospel. If you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and then follow me. And as you follow me, you will become the kind of person that lives in the reality of the kingdom of God and then begins to spread that reality everywhere. In other words, you begin to partner with God. You begin to have contribution with God. During my summer vacation this, last, this, this, this summer, Ashley and I, my wife and I, watched that show, The Good Place. Have you seen The Good Place? We watched the whole series. And I won't give it away because um, it's, it's pretty good. 
Um, but I'll, I'll, give, I'll give some more. The story is carried on to like five, six seasons by the need to have agency and to act and to have contribution. That's why the story keeps moving forward. And when in the story, in the, in the show, they get to the good place, that is, they get to heaven, heaven is depicted as a place that's boring, that's robotic, that feels more like death. And to be honest, this is what most people think about heaven. I'm going to live my life on earth, I'm going to do my thing, earn my money, get my stuff, and I have, I'm going to heaven when I die. And when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to sing a lot and eat a lot. <laughs> and have you ever thought, it might get boring in like a year? And you would be right. In the show, The Good Place, everyone there is bored. They want to go to the bad place. They're like, we're done with this place. Everything we want is here. There is no, basically, there's no contribution. There's no agency. See, when we get the whole gospel, we get to see a little bit clearer what God's doing. That God, at the very beginning, created humans to partner with him. That we continue to mess it up, and Israel's story is our story, so we can't be too hard on them. Jesus comes and brings in the kingdom of God so we can live into its availability today, meaning we can start partnering with God again in his kingdom that is breaking into time and space. And in that process, from the time we become a disciple to the time that we die, we're becoming the kind of people that when the new heavens and the new earth get kicked off, meaning when Jesus, when Jesus comes back and starts the new heavens and the new earth, we are the kind of people that know how to contribute with the king. This is why Jesus says, if, you've, if you're faithful a little, I'll make you faithful with much. I'll make you rulers and kings and queens in the next life. There will be a next life where we are rebuilding this earth with God, contributing. It will not be boring, just like eat everything you want and just keep singing and that's heaven. That is not the picture, biblical picture of heaven that we get. The biblical picture of heaven that we get is Looks kind of like your, your bodies will look like kind of like they do now. Sorry to tell you, you're like, I thought I was going to get the rock's body. No, you're not getting the rock's body. <laughs> if he goes to heaven, he gets his body. You have your body. You're like, whoa, I better start taking care of it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And this earth will look kind of like it is today, renewed. Jesus <laughs> looked like his body when he resurrected from the dead. He looked like his, it was him. It was him. They saw him, they're like, Rabboni, like Jesus, you teach, you, they weren't like Dwayne the Rock Johnson? Like what? <laughs> they looked like him. This is what a renewed body. So I, I hate to be messing with maybe years of theology for some of you, but, but Jesus' gospel is the availability of the kingdom of God breaking in now. So what this does is I think it should keep us from being lazy and unrepentant thinking, I have fire insurance, so when I die, I go to heaven. That is not a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is, I am partnering with God right now today to live in the, the kingdom of God, the gospel, the availability of it, and I'm spreading it. I'm co-partnering with God to spread this good news all over San Francisco for the renewal of the city. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm doing. And I'm doing that by obeying everything Jesus taught me, 
Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything. I, for some of you, are like, I don't, what do I need to obey for? I'm like, I'm saved. No, that's not it. Gospel, believe the gospel is I obey everything Jesus taught about money, about sex, about power, about forgiveness, about turning the other cheek, about peace, about justice. And we move out into the city to become people that live in the kingdom of God or that live in the gospel. That is the point. So when Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, that word repent is a word about thinking. In Greek it means think on your thinking. Think about the way you lived your life. Think about your mental maps of reality. Think about the way that you think about the world and rethink them in light of the fact that the, that the kingdom of God is here now. And you don't have to go after. You, you, you need to turn from the way you've been living and live into the kingdom of God. Now, does it include salvation and heaven? Yes, absolutely all of that. But that's a part of the gospel, not the whole thing. Jesus' death, as he said, is an atoning death for our sins, for sure. But the gospel is not that. The gospel, that's part of the gospel. The whole gospel is I live in the availability of the kingdom of God because Christ has washed me of my sin, because Christ made the kingdom of God available. I live in it and I spread it. Let's stand and pray. Would you um, open your hands in a, in a posture of just receiving the kingdom of God? Receiving the gospel. I want to pray for you. Actually, before I do, I want to give you the opportunity just to say in your own mind, your own heart, in your own language, to say, I repent and I receive the kingdom of God. I repent, Jesus, and I receive your kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done. Would you give us an imagination of something way, way bigger than what we thought being a Christian was? Would you reorder our priorities, God, in light of your kingdom now? Would we turn from the things that we think give us comfort and joy and pleasure and a life and rethink our way of thinking in light of your present kingdom now? Would your kingdom come to bear on our sorrows, on our victories, our, our oppression, and our triumphs. Kingdom of God, come. For those who are, are poor in spirit, I pray right now, and their spirit feels depleted, I pray that they would feel blessed because such are people who live in your kingdom. For those that feel persecuted for righteousness, like they've done the right thing, but they're just getting destroyed because of it. 
I pray they would feel blessed because such are those who live in your kingdom. I pray for those who are peacemakers. I feel like they're not making any major strides in peacemaking. I pray they would feel blessed because such are those who live in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would live in the light of your kingdom and it would be available to us. It would be the air in our lungs and we would constantly be repenting because that word means a constant state of being, constant action. We're always repenting. And we come before you this morning and we repent again saying, we want to align with your kingdom. We want to live according to your gospel. Your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives in this city in our world as it is in heaven. And may we be the answer to that great prayer as your people living in your kingdom. In Jesus' name.